everybody, welcome back to today's episode of What's the Crime with Grania and Gemma. So some of our listeners may already be familiar with today's story because this actually happened in Dublin in 2004 and this is the story of Rachel O'Reilly. Do you remember this? I do, yeah. This was big in the media in Ireland um, in that year. So in the year of 2004... Rachel and Joe O'Reilly seemed to have a good life. They had they'd healthy children, a lovely home in the country. They didn't really have any sort of financial worries. 32-year-old Joe and 30-year-old Rachel were already on their second home. So the previous year, they had actually moved from the north Dublin suburb of Whitehall to the country. Um, their new home was a comfortable bungalow and it was sort of to give their two children, Luke and Adam, a safer upbringing. Do you know, with just sort of a little bit more freedom. Yeah. Yeah. So the couple were, like I said, they were in a good place financially. Rachel worked one day a week in a solicitor's office in Donnybrook. And she also supplemented her income by also working with Avon. Do you remember that was a big thing as yeah, well? Sort yes. of people sort of working with Avon and selling products and stuff. It was huge, actually, at the time. So many yeah. people did it. The schedule um, of that allowed her to devote, you know, plenty of time to her children, spend time with them, spend time at home. But most of their financial success could be attributed to Joe's position. So he was a manager in Viacom, which was like an advertising company. And he had worked his way up through the ranks um, in a number of different companies. And now he oversaw a, sa- a staff of 26. So Rachel O'Reilly had actually been adopted. Her birth mother was a lady called Teresa Lowe and she had been young when she gave birth to baby girl on the 10th of October 1973. So, you know, she was only 17, she was single and she gave the baby up for adoption. And the baby was adopted by Jim and Rose Kalali. Um, The couple would actually eventually adopt five children and raise them in their home in Whitehall in in the north of the city. Uh, Teresa then married and did later attempt to get her daughter back but was told by the adoption agency that she had already been adopted. So therefore Rachel grew up a Kalali and she had a very happy childhood. Um, You know they had a really tight-knit family. Her father Jim worked as a plumber um, and he went on to establish his own contracting business and Rose, her mum, worked in the home. So Rachel attended school, you know she was known as a very bubbly, friendly girl. When... um, she turned 17. She actually did look up her birth mother. Um, by this time, uh, Teresa Lowe had three other children um, and Rachel was introduced to that family and they did keep, you know, an ongoing contact. Soon after leaving school, she began working part time in Arnott's department store in the city centre. So she was just 18 when she met Joe O'Reilly. So Joe grew up a couple of miles from Rachel's home in Whitehall. Um, He had a brother and two sisters and they were friends first, Joe and Rachel. Um, Then they began dating, then they moved in together and by 1997 they got married. The newly married couple bought a house in Whitehall and Luke was born in 1999 and then their other son Adam two years later. So after Luke's birth, Rachel gave up full-time work. So like I said, she did still work one day a week in the solicitor's office where she had been employed. In May 2003, they moved to Baldara. So there, you know, they got involved in community activity. They got stuck in. 
Rachel was particularly sporty. She played hockey and she, um, you know, the couple got involved in softball as well. She was actually voted player of the year as well um, for a team called the Renegades. On Monday the 4th of October 2004, Rachel dropped her son Adam to school at around 9.30 in the morning. So at the door of the school, she spoke briefly to another mother before she heads home again. At 1.10pm that afternoon, while Joe was at work, he's eaten his lunch and he got a call from a lady called Helen Murr. So this is a lady that works at the crash that their son goes to. And she informs him that Rachel hadn't picked Adam up from crash at 12.30 as arranged. So he's confused. He told her that, you know, I'll come out and pick, pick him up as something must have come up with Rachel. So he dialed Rachel's phone number and left a message. Hi Rach, it's only me. I just got a call from Helen in Montessori. She says you haven't picked up Adam. Give us a shout. I'm going to try the home number. You've no doubt left your phone at home or in the back of the car or something. A couple of minutes later, he rang his mother-in-law, Rose, who is Rachel's mum, to ask her if she had seen Rachel. So he tells her that she hadn't picked up Adam from crash and there might be something up. So Rose was making lunch for herself and her husband, Jim, um, when Joe rang. An instinct just told her that there was something wrong. Joe rang Rachel again at 1.45pm and left a message. Me again. I spoke to your mother. I've been crying. You have me worried. I'm just coming on to the M1 now. At five past two, he arrived at the crash. So the teacher then reminded him that he would... Um, that Luke, their other son, would now be finished national school as well and he might want to pick him up too. So he drove a few miles but Luke had already been collected by another parent. That was like an arrangement that Rachel had already made. So Rose, Rachel's mum, who Joe had called, she got into her car and she drove north to Rachel's house, arriving there at around two o'clock. So the patio door was open, which was unusual, and also the curtains were drawn and the sink tap was running. So she goes in, she walks through the house calling her daughter's name. She, you know, looks in different rooms and then she notices something at the door to Rachel's room. Rachel's body was lying on the ground and there was blood everywhere. So she ran over in complete shock, kneels down beside her daughter and she touched her body and she knew that she was dead. Oh my God, that's absolutely heartbreaking. Within minutes, Joe pulled up outside he came running to Rachel's room where Rose was already knelt over her daughter's body. So he assessed the scene and he seen, you know, his wife lying on the ground and her, her mother grieving over him, over her. Um, and she told him that Rachel was dead. The whirlwind that came after, like the house filled, like family arrived, neighbours came in, an ambulance arrived, but paramedics established that there was nothing that they could do and the guards cordoned off the crime scene. Soon after, the Kalalis gathered to head home to their house to try and process this awful reality that... That you just couldn't process? Nah. How do you process that? And like, that was just the start, you know, like of what was to hit them. Joe put the children in his car and drove to his mother's house in Dunlear. So pathology and forensic evidence of the blood patterns suggested that Rachel was subjected to a sustained attack with a blunt object. So there was a dumbbell that was missing from the spare room in the house. So they're sort of thinking, okay, they they think that this might have been the murder weapon. 
she received between four and nine blows to the head and an injury to her wrist suggested that she was held down as some of the blows were administered. Oh my God. An injury to her arm showed she'd probably taken a defensive stance and if that was a case, if that was the case, and she probably had like you know a moment where she actually was aware that her attacker was there and and intending on killing her. At around seven p.m. that evening, there was a knock at Anne O'Reilly's home. So that was Joe's mother home. Joe's mother's home. That's where I said that he'd taken the kids, and three guards introduced themselves. They were invited in. They obviously gave their condolences to Joe. Um, they wanted to sort of basically establish a few things about Rachel you know if she had any enemies their marriage etc it was informal um and Joe sort of you know retraced his steps of the day so basically um he left the house at 5 25 a.m it was still dark he drove to this Clearwater. is the morning of yeah, this is him okay. retracing his steps. So this is basically him sort of saying, okay, well, um, he left the house at 5.25am, so he obviously leaves super early for work. He drove to Clearwater to fill his car with petrol because it was cheaper there. He filled the tank of his Fiat Maria estate um, with 49 euro worth of petrol. He drove to the Jackie Kelly Fitness Club where he met his friend Derek Kearney. So the two men had become friends after he had joined Viacom, which like I said, was the advertising company where Joe worked. So they kind of opted to use the sauna. They decided instead of doing a workout that morning. Um, and then after that, from there, it was a short drive to Viacom where they worked. Um, and he entered the office soon after 7.30 a.m. So that morning, he was due to travel to the Broadstone bus garage in Philsborough. So Viacom was like involved in applying like posters, advertising posters onto the Dublin bus fleet. Um, one of Joe's jobs was obviously to oversee this. And at 8.04 a.m. that morning, he emailed a friend, Kieran Gallagher, about a lunch date that they had arranged for the day. So that email said, Hiya, um, I'll be out and about most of the morning and in per phone coverage areas. So unless I hear from you otherwise, lunch at 2 p.m. at the usual place. Got the 40 quid off my brother at the weekend. Later, Joe. So he then left Viacom with his friend Derek and they arranged to meet at the garage and um, he would follow in his own car. So basically the, the only reason they travelled separately was because they both wanted to avail of their mileage allowances from the company. Um, and he was back in the office at midday and that was about an hour before he was alerted that Rachel hadn't turned up in the crash to pick up their son obviously. Yeah. So they asked him about his marriage to Rachel. You know, he told him, look, it's not perfect, but, you know, whose is? It has rocky patches, but um, for the most part, that was behind them. He did tell the officers that there had been an anonymous complaint about Rachel's treatment of the children to social services a few months previously. But, you know, he didn't know who made the complaint and him and Rachel had dealt with it together. They asked if either of them was having an affair, to which he replied that he wasn't and he was fairly sure either was Rachel. So in the course of sort of the interview, uh, his sister came into the room. She was in a distressed state. She heard the news about Rachel. She hugged Joe, obviously very upset. Um, yeah. So the guards are like, look, um, let's just leave them to grieve in peace. Over the following days, the investigation veered towards the possibility that this was like a burglary 
gone wrong because they couldn't think of any outright enemies that Rachel would have. Um, you know, and Joe was checked out from being at work. The forensic examination of the house took place, but there was nothing to suggest that there had been anyone other than the occupants of the house and Rose Kalali there that day. The only forensic detail were spots of blood taken from a washing machine in the kitchen, which they sent away for analysis. So obviously this blood wasn't Rachel's. Yes, they sent it away anyway to sort of see. Two days after the killing, in a culvert about a third of a mile from the house, a search discovered a brown camera bag. So uh, they showed it to Joe and he's like, yes, it is Rachel's. And once again, the idea that this presumably is a robbery that went wrong. Um, the conclusion that they made is like this panic-stricken murderer stole the bag and then he threw it into this culvert when he flew when he f- uh, fled from the house. However, the guard that discovered the bag, he's like not so sure. So its positioning suggested that it had been sort of placed there rather than thrown. You know, if something was like thrown from a car window yeah. or even from the road, it was carefully placed. Aside from that, there was 840 euro cash in the kitchen that Rachel had made from her sales with Avon um, and that was in view and so obviously if it was like someone's going to steal that if it's a bird like yeah, yeah exactly so they're sort of like they didn't really take anything of value like a camera bag yeah to throw away to throw away meanwhile the bereaved family prepare for Rachel's funeral on the night of the wake in the Kalali home, someone suggested it would be nice for the family members to leave like a nice letter or, you know, a note for her in the coffin, which I also think is a lovely idea. Um, some of Joe's was as follows. Rachel, I love you so very, very much. I cannot think what I will ever do without you and I don't want to think. You're the best thing that ever happened to me and you will never be replaced. This is the hardest letter I've ever had to write for reasons only we know. Rachel, forgive me. Two words, one sentence, but I will say them forever. The funeral mass took place at the Holy Child Church in Whitehall. So they spoke of Rachel, of her loving, you know, bubbly personality, how everybody would miss her. Joe also spoke of the person responsible for her death as well. He said, unlike you, she is at peace. Unlike you, she is sleeping. She forgives you and I hope she gives me the strength to someday forgive you. On October 22nd, about three weeks after the murder, Rose and Joe, her, uh, Rachel's mum and her husband Joe, made an appearance on RTE's The Late, Late Show to make an appeal to catch the killer. So I am going to show a clip of this. Um, this is them basically talking about, you know, finding justice of for Rachel. Yeah. Based on the situation you found, you both found in the house, I mean, did you get the sense that she'd been taken unawares, that this was someone that perhaps she trusted and, or? Yeah, I, I think so. Where, where the murder happened was in the bedroom, which is the very last room of the house. So it's the room where you, you're least likely to bring someone you don't know because you're cornered. Um, my view as well would be, and again, it's just my view, it's not a police theory, it's, it's just my own personal belief, is that she knew the person because why else would you kill her? If it's a, a violent robbery, why go to the extreme of murdering the person unless they can identify you? And that's why we, we've talked about this and practically nothing else for the last three weeks. We just feel it's someone she would have known or someone she could have identified. At the very end of that interview, Joe said, Everyone, including myself, is a suspect until this is resolved. 
you know, there there was an astounding amount of media regarding Rachel's death and Rachel's murder. Like, obviously, us being from Ireland, the Late Late Show was prime time, one of the biggest shows in the country. Um, and Rose and Joe also appeared on, you know, radio. Uh, they did radio interviews, newspaper, basically as much interviews as they could to keep Rachel's name out there. Yeah. To find to out what find happened to her. Happened, find the killer. Exactly. The guards didn't really have any major suspects that were sticking out to them. So the spots of blood that had been taken from and examined from the wash machine, which I remember I said that was kind of the yeah. only thing they found that they didn't that they knew sort of was not the occupants of the house, that was identified as belonging to Rachel's half brother Thomas Lowe. So remember I said that Rachel had been adopted. Um, well, Thomas was um, Teresa's son, who Teresa was her birth mother, but they, you know, they got on really, really well. Um, Rachel and Thomas they were close and he told the guards that he assumed that it was related to an incident that had taken place a few months previously when he had offered to build a deck there basically he was working there cut his finger went to put it under the tap and the sink spots of blood must have fallen onto the washing machine and basically just gone undetected in the house until it was forensically examined for this So, so do they just rule him out straight away I think that like his alibi for the day is not airtight or anything, but there's there's no motive or there's no real other forensic evidence or anything relating to Thomas either. Yeah. However, there was another picture coming out about the happy family life that Joe and Rachel supposedly have. Okay, so I'm just going to briefly interrupt this episode because we just want to say a very quick thank you to our sponsor for season three, the Muff Liquor Company. So before you start sniggering, Muff is actually a village in Donegal and they have a liquor company. So get your head out of the gutter. (laughs) The Muff Liquor Company is an award-winning premium handcrafted Irish spirit company. You can purchase six times distilled handcrafted Irish gin whiskey and vodka and I mean we have personally tasted (laughs) all of the above numerous times (laughs) so we can say firsthand that they are definitely the best but don't just take our word for it you can order online at themuffliquorcompany.com Hi what can I get you? Hi uh, can I get two sparkling waters and two uh, margaritas? No uh Two more... Mojitos. No, sorry. Uh, just two more... Moscow Mules? Having trouble asking for our famous vodka and gin by name? No problem, because now you can buy your favourite muff liquor online. Fancy enjoying a bit of muff at home? Order now at themuffliquorcompany.com and use discount code What's the Crime for 10% off. The Muff Liquor Company. Come for the name, stay for the taste. Over 18s, drink responsibly. Visit drinkaware.ie. So please do let us know if you enjoy a nice gin and tonic or a nice hot whiskey listening to the next episode of What's the Crime. So when Joe had previously denied that he had had an affair, that wasn't true. He, in fact, had been having an affair with a lady called Nikki Pelly. So he met her in January 2004. Basically, you know, met her, um, kind of told her that him and Rachel had been having problems. You know, they were sleeping in separate bedrooms by that point. And by the summer of 2004, he was seeing her at least twice a week, Tuesdays and Saturday evenings. 
So Rachel had become suspicious about this because Joe was spending less and less time at home. There were a lot of like, you know, overnight bus inspections that he had to go to. So exactly how much she did know, whether it be something that she was sort of guessing or whether um, it was ever admitted to her has never really been fully established. Um, established, sorry. But the seriousness of their relationship was evident. You can see that they're serious about each other in the text messages that they send each other. So on the 16th of July that year, he wrote a message to her saying, Hey, I want to be your only husband. I know my place. The following morning, a message he sent to her. Good morning, beautiful. I'm completely crazy about you and I can't wait to see you again. So... Joel actually tried to deny that this affair was ongoing, you know, sort of saying like, well, that's all stopped. But on the 15th of September, which was just three weeks before Rachel's death in a text message, he uh, referred to Nikki as my beautiful bride-to-be. So so that doesn't sound like it stopped. It, it doesn't sound yeah. like it stopped. And it doesn't sound like something that's just like going to stop abruptly if you're saying if you're that, that you want to marry someone. Exactly. Like that's that's a real serious sort of like you know, affair. Um, also, I'm going to read out a series of emails that Joe sent to his sister um, in June 2004, which sort of paints a picture of how he actually viewed Rachel and also of their relationship in general. So just bear with me for these. This is from Anne O'Reilly to Joe at 10.16am on the 9th of June 2004. Hi, I'm just asking you how you got on yesterday. How are you? I wanted to leave you alone yesterday to get your head together, but trust me, I held back on calling or mailing you. Let me know how things are and if you need anything. Concerned banana. So that's from Anne to Joe. This is a reply from Joe to Anne at 10.41am on that day. In a nutshell, it was a big steaming pile of shite. They told us both that shouting at the kids was okay. Sure, we all do it. Hitting kids is okay in the eyes of the law, as again, we all do it. They never come out under visit homes of kids being reported as being abused unless the allegation is of a sexual nature or after several cases of non-accidental hospitalizations. Could it have gone any worse? Yes. Rachel is a good mother because she admits to having problems dealing with the kids and confessed to shouting at them on a daily basis. There's some Mickey Mouse course run once a year to help parents cope with quote difficult kids and quote pairing difficulties, parenting difficulties. And Rachel has volunteered to go on one. She was also playing the home help card but didn't get anywhere. The best I got was a commitment by getting the district nurse to pay a visit and Adam is due his developmental checkup. He should have got it last year, but in the words of his mother, you know yourself, but with the house move and so on, it's easy to forget these things. Anyway, I gave them go ahead to drop by whenever they want to see the kids. Hopefully the district nurse will see her at her best or else the state of the house that the house that lazy cunt leaves it in. Positives? Very few. At least it's on record that I don't need to attend the course. I have no issues in dealing with the kids and the complaint had nothing to do with me. To answer your question as to how I am, well, to be honest, I wasn't expecting much as you were no doubt aware. So I wasn't too shocked with the apathy displayed by our wonderful child protection people. That said, I think matters may get worse as she told me in the car park that, 
quote, I knew you were overreacting, going on to me about shouting at the kids. Did you hear them? Everybody does it. And I'm a good mother, unquote. Instead of giving her a slap on the wrist, it appears they've forgiven her and patted her on the back for a job well done. Did you talk to Derek, by the way? That's their brother. I had to physically restrain him on Saturday night. Not good. He's too much of a hothead. But that said, you couldn't really blame him. Adam was reefed up by the arm and dragged to bed and she nearly took his ears off putting his PJ's top over his head. As usual, I had a right go at her. But as usual, by that stage, the damage is already done. Shouldn't really complain though. She is a, quote, wonderful mother in the eyes of the state. Joe. P.S. Interesting choice of terminology used by the social worker. Everything was Rachel is the main caregiver and I was a secondary caregiver. I'm already Mr. Weekend Custody in the eyes of the state. Doesn't bode too well, does it? Oh, nearly forgot the case is now closed to their satisfaction. So. Okay, that's a lot to unpack. <laughs> that's a lot to unpack. Remember I said that there had been an anonymous complaint? Yeah. So this is them obviously... Um, saying that the, this is the meeting they had them this is the, the meeting that they had whenever they were investigating this complaint and he's like he's basically calling her a bad mother yeah I'm gonna, and like he used the word cunt to describe his wife I know that's nasty um again I'm going to just continue on with um a couple more of these emails I'm going to just try and cut them slightly short as well because I know they are quite long from this is Anne's reply to Joe at 11.01am that day well, at least you get the DN coming out, district nurse, on unexpected visits. That can't be too bad, really. Dan was talking to her yesterday and she told him that she now counts to 10 and examines the situation with the kids. So let's hope something good, even if it's a little, will come out of this. So you're going out for a meal on Friday night with her. Should be good fun. All nice and romantic. Brackets, not. Try again to talk to her about her lack of motherly instincts. Have you told her she's none? Um... That kind of goes on a little bit more. I'm going to just skip on to Joe's reply to Anne at 3.42pm. Hi, yeah, so now she counts to 10. Believe that and you're not my sister. Where the hell did you hear that I was going out for a night with that cunt? A meal? I'd rather choke. Absolutely, no way, never, not happening. To quote your good self, never look back, only forward. Just to drill the point home, me plus Rachel plus marriage equals over. I keep telling her, straight as you like, exactly what I think of her mothering instincts. Yes, in fact, to be a little fair, I'm very aware that I'm overcritical at times, although I don't feel guilty about it, to be honest. She repulses me. Derek didn't say anything. I wouldn't let him. Bad enough, I have to bite my tongue and restrain myself. I don't need him losing it. Uh... Not for her sake, but for the kids. I wouldn't like to see their mother abused by their uncle. Derek and I don't want his halo around them diminished in any way. So they obviously like their uncle Derek. That's where you need to be careful. When Ma reported the incident that brought about yesterday's farce, it nearly came out as to who did the reporting. You are prime suspect number one. You know it. By all means, drag her fat ass outside and kick it into the middle of next week. And not in front of the boys and don't leave any marks that can and will be used against you in the court of law. Okay, I'm just going to leave it at that because there's a lot, again, to unpack. Oh my God. So they reported her? His mum reported her. Okay. And like from reading that, the way he refers to her does not it's indicate to me horrible. Yeah, that they're happy. It does not indicate to me that they're this loving couple. Like he calls her lazy, he calls her a cunt. 
when she says, oh, like, use, are you going for a meal together? He's like, I'd rather choke. Um, even the way he talks about her, like, being a mum, like, her mother and skills. Um, and obviously the fact that it was his mum that reported her. He sounds horrible. He does sound horrible. And what I'm going back to here is whenever she... He called her and left her a voicemail whenever he was picking up the mm-hmm. child. He's like, hi, love. Mm-hmm. And then I've been crying. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. so now you're this loving husband. Send her voicemails. But these... These show a different story. Yeah. So he says something as well about like, oh, um, I'm Mr. Weekend in the eyes of the law. But like, Rachel... Oh, he said that she's... They're calling her the primary caregiver. Yeah. But she is at home all day. She gave up her job to look after her children. And he's just said... That he leaves the house at 5.25am. Yes, he's working all these long hours. And also... Which is fair enough, but... Exactly, but she she is is the primary primary caregiver. caregiver. And also, when he's not at work, he's out having this affair. Yeah. Um, It's also just very important to note that there's no evidence at all that Rachel was anything but a good mother. These are emails wrote by Joe and his sister. So if anything to me, it kind of sounds like there's a bit of gaslighting going on, like calling her a bad mother and like making her believe that she's a bad mother. Um... And I think that's his way of trying to convince her that she's a bad mother so he can kind of have this reason to leave her and continue on this relationship and still have access to the kids. There's a few other things that Joe does that casts some suspicion onto him and his behaviour. After the burial, the funeral party went to the Regency Hotel in Whitehall for a meal and Joe fell into a conversation with one of Rachel's friends. There was a discussion about the murder weapon and he said, I don't know why they're searching the fields. It's in the water. He said, if I done it, that's where it will be because there's water all around and it would get rid of DNA and all that other sort of stuff. Right, okay. Well, that's bizarre. Bizarre. It's sus to say the very least. Like, why would you even say that? But the most bizarre behaviour, now that you say it, that he displayed was on the 12th of October. So the guards returned possession of the house to Joe um, the following morning, he invites Rachel's family, the Kalalis, up to the house. So he co- sort of says, like, um, you know, I feel a great sense of peace here and it might be helpful f- for you to come as well. So Jim Rose, their son, Paul, and Paul's wife, Denise, they travel up um, to the house. But the house is in the same state as it was the day of the murder. Like the bloodstains hadn't even been washed away. Oh, jeez. So... It gets worse. Joe was looking at the blood spatters and he was making like movements and reactions with his hand to how he thought Rachel was hit. So he's like reenacting what he thought happened. Like he got down on his hunkers and he said that when the killer, you know, got down, he wasn't going to let her up again. And he starts to like imitate like blows with like a, a weapon saying, oh, like the killer must have done this and he must have done that. And then he moved to the bathroom and he said the killer must have stopped here and then heard her making a noise and then went back for another blow. Right, that's so strange. And also how horrifying for her mom and dad and brother and sister not to be standing watching that and the blood of her. Like that's absolutely... And also starting to realise that... Traumatic for them even to watch though and also thinking there's something not right here with this man. So... Like, they're clearly disgusted. Um, and then, from this point, we're kind of getting a picture that Joe's obviously knows more than he's letting on. So, even though these reenactments are, like, oh, 
shocking, weird mm, to say the very prove least. Anything. Not, they're not proof. They don't prove anything. However, something else does. On the morning of the mor- murder, Joe's alibi was that he left home, went to the fitness centre to meet his friend, went to work, left work to go out and inspect that bus garage, and then returned to work that afternoon. However, at 9.25am, he received a call from Kearney, which lasted just over two minutes. A dark Fiat Maria car, believed to be Joe's, was spotted on CCTV, driving in the direction of their home. At 9.42 that morning, Kieran Gallagher texted him with a reply. That text was rooted through a quarry mast right beside the O'Reilly home. At 9.59am, his car passed back again the opposite direction from the house, leaving O'Reilly 18 minutes in the home at the time the crime was believed to have been committed. So, he was saying, oh, I never went home that morning. But when he received that text message, basically the the it bounced off a mast right beside their home. So, so his phone. So, he so was his phone. There. So he was there. He wanted Rachel out of the picture so that he could continue his life with Nikki Pelly, the woman he was having an affair with, without the risk of losing the custody of his sons and just coming off as this gracious, good, grieving husband. I mean, even appearing on the Late Late Show and stuff. I know. Even doing those media. And yeah. the things that he said, like, just almost believable. Yeah. He was arrested twice a month after the murder and again in March 2006. On both occasions, he exercised for the greater part his right to silence. So on October 19th, 2006, he was charged with Rachel's murder. The trial began on the 25th of June, 2007. The court was like packed for the day of the trial. Like, it, you know, crowds came in Um Joe was accompanied to court by his mum. So she would declare that she always believed her son was innocent of the charge. In fairness to her, she did have reason to be suspicious of the criminal justice system because in 1976, when Joe was barely a teenager, um, her brother, Christy Lynch, was jailed for murder. So he had been working as a painter decorator in a house in Sandymount when the body of a 51-year-old woman was found. He was dragged in for questioning and he made a statement, but it was under like really controversial circumstances. And he was convicted of of the murder in the Central Criminal Court and jailed for life. But over the following four years, his case went through the appeal process. And finally, in December 1980, the Supreme Court ruled that he should never have been convicted and he was acquitted. So, of course, you know, this is going to leave a scar on her. The emails between Joe um, and his sister would provide some of the most damning evidence in the trial because obviously even me reading out some of those emails to you, you can see the picture of their life and yeah, how and he hated her. Yeah, and the hatred he'd seem to have for her. Exactly. So um, Rachel's parents and her um, siblings were present every day and of course, obviously they find much of the evidence so upsetting. Joe showed very little emotion throughout the proceedings. The only time he kind of really showed a lot of emotion over um, the death of his wife was an extract uh, from a letter that he had left in Rachel's coffin was read aloud. Um, Do you remember when I said that the night of the funeral um, or beforehand, they decided that they would write letters to Rachel and I said, that's a lovely idea. He writ in his letter, like, forgive me, two words. So... 
the guards kind of honed in on that. Like, forgive me for what? Yeah. You know? Um, but the evidence that was most damning, obviously, was the call tracking. So an engineer employed by O2, who is a, uh, O2's a Network mobile phone provider. company yeah. Yeah, in Ireland. Um, and he was asked if it was possible for a person to make a call in Fallsburg or Broadstone, which is where he claimed to be, and have it rooted through the Murphy's quarry mast, which was the one right by the O'Reilly home. Um, that the message actually bounced off and this engineer said it was impossible so his alibi that he arrived at the bus garage at nine um, but sort of couldn't really locate anybody that was working there meant that he was hanging around for an hour without attempting to track anybody down without attempting to be like hold on a minute you know what am I here for the email exchanges with his sister clearly showed the motive the prosecution also suggested that maybe money had played a part. So the couple's home was insured against the mortgage um, in like the normal manner, you know, in the event of one day and the other would receive roughly the cost of the remaining mortgage. So in their case, it was around €216,000. And on Saturday, the 21st of July at 6.40pm, a verdict had been reached. Guilty. The Kalalis and Rachel's friends and family were so happy with this verdict because to them, this was finally justice. Justice being served. Finally, because it had been a long time coming. Rose Kalali, Rachel's mother, wished to read a victim impact statement. This is so sad. Like, I just think of her, her mom finding her body and I just... Know knowing that this person was responsible for so long and someone that they trusted and Rachel trusted obviously oh my god and even just for Rachel's kids like their their kids like they've lost their mother and oh it's just so sad but I'm going to read a bit of the victim impact statement it's almost three years since Rachel cast her beloved look and Adam goodbye and for the next 20 minutes she was subjected to the most horrific violent and barbaric attack that no one should ever have to go through We are haunted by the thought of what happened to our beautiful sister and daughter that morning. From the moment on the lays of everybody who knew Rachel and loved her were thrown into turmoil. Even though justice has been done, our grief and distress will never diminish. Rachel was a truly beautiful, loving, caring and capable girl who has left so many memories and she meant so much to so many. Her aunts, uncles, cousins, nieces and nephews and many friends. Each of us has been traumatised by feelings of helplessness, shock, grief and their horrific reality that we can no longer bring her back. This is the hardest part of our pain. Not only did Rachel leave without saying goodbye, she also left her beloved sons, Luke and Adam, confused, scared and angry. We feel heartbroken as the biggest damage will surely be left at their door as they live their lives without the guidance and counselling of their best friend. Oh my God. I know. So heartbreaking. He tried to take the case to the Court of Appeal. Joe, so this is Joe. The yes, tried Joe to tried to do this. Um, and after losing that application, he then tried to appeal to the Supreme Court. In November 2016, um, he was refused that appeal. So Rachel's family, of course, are adamant that he has to serve his time and he cannot be freed early. Like, you know, every time 
this process comes about like that causes so much distress to yeah. them because they ha- it brings it all up they have to fight it again because, which they shouldn't have to which they shouldn't have to because they have vowed to fight him every inch of the way to prevent him getting out any sooner than he should so because of him a mother was robbed from her children a daughter was robbed from her parents and her family are having to continue to fight for justice for Rachel Okay, guys, thanks for listening to this week's episode of What's the Crime? Tune in next week for a brand new episode of What's the Crime with Grania and Gemma. Mm-hmm.